no one knew what to say. Some people sent cards. Um, some people didn't send cards. I didn't know what annoyed me more. People that send all these well wishes. Oh, congratulations, it's such wonderful news. And I thought, <laughs> it's not wonderful news. This is a story about a pregnancy that doesn't end the way it should. About what happens when your baby is born too early to survive alone. It's about the parents, the babies and the doctors who save them. It's about what happens when your life doesn't turn out quite the way you expected and the untold story of what happens next. I'm Francesca Siegel. Welcome to Mothership. I wanted to introduce you to another friend of mine from the Milking Shed, Jess, in what might be one of the hardest interviews of my career. A trigger warning, as should be obvious from the title of this episode, we will be talking about the experience of losing a child. That was the fear for all of us whose babies came very early, but for Jess and her husband Pete, that fear became a reality. When I met Jess, I was in one of the two prime seats in the Milking Shed at the back facing the wall with access to the table. It's pretty fancy VIP stuff. It was a few days after my twins were born and my brief time on the ward had already been changed by the wisdom in that milking shed. Advice from people who really knew mattered in those first days and it's funny now how much I thought I knew at that stage. I was only 48 hours in and I'm sure I felt I was already an expert. And then I met the first person newer than me, Jess, with dark hair and huge soulful eyes and in obvious pain from her very recent C-section, battling with one of the massive breast pumps. I'd been coaxed by a midwife to hand express in those first few days, which is not much gentler, I have to admit, but is at least effective. And so in the spirit of the milking shed, I piped up. And so there we sat, squeezing our nipples, peering in speculation at the paltry results and I mean, I don't think we'd even exchanged names at that point, had we? No, in fact, I forgot your name and suggested the name Francesca for one of your daughters. I did. You You introduced yourself as Francesca. And probably half an hour later, I said, how about Francesca? That was going to be Rafi's name if he was a girl. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That's about the level of coherence in the milking shed at that stage. What was happening in your life when you gave birth? Um wasn't as dramatic as having this wonderful pregnancy and all of a sudden my son popped out. I was in hospital for six weeks before I gave birth. I'd been bleeding since week eight of pregnancy. So it just, it it wasn't a very nice time. And what were you doing in hospital for eight weeks? Going insane. Um, Quietly going insane. Um, They told me that I didn't have to stay in bed, that it was important to get up and move about, but without fail, every time I got up and I was standing up for more than five minutes, I'd have a huge bleed. So they were telling me there's no correlation, it's it's a complete coincidence, but it just, that clearly wasn't the case. (laughs) And where are you meant to go when you're trapped in hospital anyway, just up and down the corridors? Up and down the corridors, yeah, to get a drink. Um, fresh air, didn't get much fresh air. Were you allowed, like, out to, you know, go to, like, McDonald's? Right? No, <laughs> no, I wasn't allowed out. I went out once. My sister came and took me in a wheelchair. And we went over the road to, I think it was Ask, and had dinner. Um, and that was the only time I went out. That was the only time in six weeks? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and then 
when did they decide to deliver him? Um, he decided, um, as he controlled pretty much everything that happened in his life, he decided my husband Pete had been with me um, those six weeks. He'd been at my bedside pretty much every second that he could. He had a work trip. He was away for 48 hours. And at that point, Rafi decided, did right, let's go. Um, so my waters broke about 9pm on the Saturday night. 25 hours in labour of different consultants trying to work out whether it was better to keep him in, to get him out. And then 10pm on the Sunday night, he was delivered by emergency C-section. And how many weeks were you at this stage? 26 plus 5. I cling on to those plus 5. Plus 5, wow. <laughs> They're very Every important. Day <laughs> and presumably all this time you've been in hospital, they've been preparing you for the possibility that you're going to have a premature delivery? Yes, they, they kept saying it but I didn't actually accept that it was going to happen. They Pretty much every day they told me it may happen today, it may happen tomorrow, and I said, no, no, he's staying in. You can keep me in hospital, but he's staying in. I'll keep him safe. Um, but I couldn't. I think it's so human and so interesting and so human and so painful to hear you say I couldn't as though... It's so natural. It's where we all go immediately as though this was in any way... Yeah. something you had any responsibility for or control over. No, no, and common sense. I know that I didn't, but... Oh, but it doesn't change any of the feelings, does it? No, he was my baby and I couldn't protect him. It's that utter feeling of helplessness. Yes. Yeah. I saw him um, about two hours later. They wheeled me in um, to intensive care, um, to the neonatal intensive care, on my bed. Um, and I, I don't actually remember it at all. I've seen all the pictures of me putting my hand in, but I, I genuinely cannot remember that happening. It's so soon after your own surgery and the shock of it. And yeah, and 25 hours of gas and air, <laughs> which, yeah, I wasn't feeling quite right. But, yeah, that was the first time I saw him. And then I went upstairs and slept for what felt like forever and then went back down the next morning to actually see him properly. I realised at that point he had the most wonderful head of ginger hair. Um, I hadn't believed it when Pete came back up. Um, obviously, I was on the ward. He spent most of the night with Ruffy. When I woke up, he said to me, um, our son's got ginger hair. And I said, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> he can't. We don't have ginger hair. And I went down and I saw it in real life. And it was wonderful. Our ginger ninja. Yeah. Gorgeous little Ruffy. I think there's, there's such tremendous social pressure from that dominant heteronormative narrative. You get married, you get pregnant, you glow for nine months, you have a water birth in a low-lit birthing centre, you take home your plump, healthy baby to your cosy house. What happens, do you think, when something wrenches you so far from that narrative? Did you feel cast out in some way? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I didn't know anyone that this had ever happened to before. Um, I couldn't believe it had happened to me, and I just felt so far removed from anyone that I knew that had had um, a normal birth. Did people know how to talk to you? No, no one had a clue. Um, no one knew what to say. Some people sent cards. Um, some people didn't send cards. I didn't know what annoyed me more. People that send all these well wishes. Oh, congratulations, it's such wonderful news. And I thought, <laughs> it's not wonderful news. He was born 14 weeks early, it's terrible news. But then the people that didn't acknowledge his birth, I thought, why are you not acknowledging it? I've had a baby. <laughs> Write to me. <laughs> so, but, no. <laughs> well, what would you have needed to say, to hear? I have no idea. <sighs> um, 
people to acknowledge that although he was incredibly early and no one knew whether he was going to live or die, I wanted people to acknowledge that he'd arrived, um, that it was frightening, it was terrifying, but that we were doing everything we could to keep him alive. About 10 days or so after I met Jess, I was transferred to my local hospital, um, but she and I stayed in touch by text message, cot side to cot side. Um, ups, downs, cabin fever, snacks, all the really important things. I should say that Jess is very, very funny, um, which sometimes was, um, almost meant it was impossible to believe um, the extent of what she and Pete were dealing with in hospital. I remember one day you messaged me and said you'd been liberated from the breast pump because <laughs> they told you Rafi wasn't going to make it through the night and the doctors had given you a medication to stop your milk. And then he did make it through the night, but you were off the hook. Yeah. Do you think humour was a coping mechanism? Oh, that's always been my coping mechanism throughout anything. My friend calls it humour for deflection. Um, and I think that's probably right. That's that's the way I cope with things. I make jokes about it. I find the funny sides of things. They told me, I remember the first time they called us into the room and they said, he is going to die. My reaction should have been, you know, <laughs> the reaction you'd expect. My reaction was, can I stop pumping? Can you give me pills that will stop this milk? Um, <laughs> which probably wasn't the reaction they expected. Why? That makes perfect sense yeah, to me. Yeah, I just, the thought that I wouldn't have to go and be subjected to that excruciating pain that I still felt eight weeks down the line. What point did the doctor say to you, this isn't looking great? So it was when he was six weeks old. It had been um, constant ups and downs from the day he was born. He started off doing very well. They were quite surprised at how well he was doing. Then it went terribly downhill. And then it went uphill again and they said, actually, we think he's going to be okay. Then it went downhill again. And they told me that they just couldn't understand why a baby of his size, of his gestation, had lungs as terribly damaged um, as his were. Um, no one could work it out. They tested us for a number of different genetic disorders, cystic fibrosis, everything came back negative. Um, they just didn't know. But they could tell me at six weeks that he had an infinitesimal chance of survival. Um, and that was quite difficult. My husband, Pete, heard that news and just crumbled. And I sat there and just thought, no, I don't accept that. I've seen him. I'm watching him. He is not going to die. He's going to survive. Um, but he didn't. But he did come back from quite a few moments when the doctors were convinced. That he did. There were quite a number of times. Um, there was one time in the middle of the night we were called in um, and told he's, he's not going to survive. And we sat there for hours and we watched him rally and his sats went back up, everything went back up and he was OK. Um, a couple of days later they said again, no, this is it, he's going to die. And we had a rabbi come in, he was saying a mishabayrach, a prayer at his bedside and I thought, OK, maybe this is actually happening. And Rafi had other ideas and thought, no, it's not my time yet. He hung on for another two weeks. Um, there were discussions about turning off his ventilator, which Pete and I were seriously considering um, two weeks before because they just said, it, you know, it's not fair on him. We didn't know how much pain he was in. No one could tell us how much pain he was in. They could only tell us he was on the maximum amount of morphine that they could give him to try and prevent that. Um, and we decided, no, we would let him tell us when it was his time. Um, we weren't going to be in charge of that. What was he like? He was wonderful. He um, 
was incredibly brave, incredibly strong. Um, I'm so unbelievably proud of him um, and the way he fought for those eight weeks. Um, he defied medical opinion on a number of occasions to survive as long as he did. He had... He's scrappy um, like you. Yes. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. He, um, he had a tenacious will. He was so stubborn. He inherited his father's stubbornness and possibly mine as well. Um, and he had these most wonderful eyes, um, which just had this beguiling charm. Um, and everyone that met him was just drawn to him. I know it sounds like a really strange thing to say because he was just a very, very small baby in a box. But nurses, doctors, consultants, everyone that seemed to care for him was just drawn to him. Um, consultants that weren't working on shift or weren't looking after him that day would come in just to see how he was doing. Um, he just seemed to have this incredible impact on everyone that met him. And you had some really special relationships with some of the nurses. Yes, there was um, one nurse who was so wonderful and one of the only nurses that did everything in the way that I um, wanted it to be done. Obviously, I know they have jobs to do and I, I'm not a medical professional. I don't know what they're doing. But Well, you're was... not, but week after week you become more of an expert in your own child. Yeah, but she was so considerate um, to what we wanted to do and how we wanted Rafi to be cared for. And we would read him every night um, when we had to leave the unit. Before we left, we'd read him, Guess How Much I Love You. And there was one day um, towards the end when it was so frantic, um, we left without reading it to him. And I was devastated and wanted to get back in the car and drive back. And I called um, this nurse and I asked her to read it. And she said right away. Um, obviously, I wasn't there, but I genuinely believe that she sat there and she read that book to him um, that night. And she, a friend of mine, was in um, the neonatal unit, the same unit, um, a couple of years later. And she referred to him as her ginger ninja um, and the effect that he had on her and how every time she sees um, someone with red hair in the street, she thinks of Rafi and how it made her question everything and made her more determined to become the best nurse that she could. Um, and my friend said, are, are you talking about Rafi, Jess and Pete's Rafi? And she said, yes, yes, I am. And so it's wonderful to know that even two years later, she's still thinking about him. He still had that impact on her. It's pretty incredible. Um, and yet not surprising that he touched her like that. What was it, do you think, that was different for you? Was it listening to you? Was it yes. listening to what you needed? Absolutely. It was listening. We often, um, Pete and I found that our interpretation of the consultant's advice was very different to nurses' interpretation and we had to argue with them on quite a number of occasions and we had to be quite forceful and say, no, that, that's not what she just said. Um, Can you give an example? Um, we were trying to get his oxygen levels down. So his oxygen levels were rising and rising and rising. We were doing everything This that is we his could. supplemental oxygen that he so, was yeah. being given rather than yeah. the oxygen in his So bed. he was um, ventilated as well and he was being given more oxygen. And our plan was to get that oxygen level down because he was becoming more and more dependent on it. And it got to the point where nurses were coming in and obviously if they see a baby who looks quite distressed, they're trained. Their job is go and turn up the oxygen, give them a bit more help. And it got to the point where we actually had to put a sign on his incubator that said, do not turn up the oxygen without reference to a doctor. Um, and I remember one night an agency nurse came in. Um, he 
was desatting slightly, but we had different levels of what was acceptable. Right, um, so that him. means the oxygen in his blood was dropping lower than you'd like it to be. The desatting yeah. is one of these nicky words. <laughs> you watch the monitor and really, like, the dream is 100 out of 100, mm. which you're never really going to get. Um, but when things start to drop, when the numbers start to drop too low, yeah. the nurses... Everyone panics. Yeah. Um, so she came in and she turned it right up without even looking at the sign. And we'd been working so hard over the last couple of days to get that oxygen down, to find other ways to comfort him or um, to do anything. And it, it was just completely ignored. Did you confront her? Very much so. Um, Pete confronted her. I confronted her. Um, in, <laughs> in fact, I think um, it was that day that the sister said that we should maybe um, leave the ward for a couple of minutes to calm down. Um, and Pete said that he thought that was a good idea. It's that incredibly frustrating um, negotiation between being um, a parent who has been the person most closely watching this baby for all this time mm -hmm. and yet not actually being a medical expert. So you do yeah. have to listen, you do have to take advice, mm -hmm. you do have to take on board their guidance. But equally, an agency nurse comes in who doesn't know this baby, doesn't yes. know your baby. Yesterday, one of the things you wrote to me was, I'm really very much looking forward to talking about my wonderful boy in any way that you want me to. Um, and I was wondering, do you find that people are frightened to ask or they're worried to upset you by yeah, talking about Rafi? Absolutely. Most people, in fact, the people that know me very well will talk about him as much as they can because they know that that's what I want. But the people that don't are terrified of talking to me of saying his name but what they don't realize is it's so much more upsetting for me the thought that they've forgotten him the thought that they don't talk about him than being upset um, because someone's asked me um, a question I've since had two other children and I have friends um, that talk just in conversation and they refer to Tilly as being the second child she's not she's my third child um, and I really I'm quite fiercely protective of the fact that he he's my first child he always will be my first child and that's very difficult people feel like they're reminding me about him by referring to him I don't think there in fact there hasn't been a day since he was born that I haven't thought about him and in fact I hope that there isn't a day that I don't think about him um, it doesn't upset me for people to talk about him it upsets me when people don't do you talk to the kids about him Oh yeah, absolutely. They know all about Rafi. We go um, to see him. We've always taken them to his grave. We used to call it going to see Rafi, but my son um, is now three and a little bit wiser and was incredibly confused one day um, when we went to see Rafi and he just kept saying, Mummy, I can't see him anywhere. Where, where is Rafi? So we've now changed it to the place we go to remember Rafi. Um, they know that he's their big brother. There are photos up of him all over the house. Um, I'm trying to explain Ezra's understanding a bit more. Um, and he's asking, where, where is Rafi? Why isn't Rafi here? And I'm trying to explain. Um, he was too poorly, um, that he couldn't live and he died and he's in heaven. Um, and my nephews um, actually say, they understand it a lot more. There's pictures, they're similar ages and there's pictures again, all over their house. And they know that he's um, in heaven with Grandma Fliss, who's my mum. And that comforts them, I think, to know that. Do you think people feel that Ezra and Tilly have fixed things for you? Absolutely. Um, so many people, when Ezra was born in particular, that came. And I don't think they said it out loud, but it was quite clear that they thought, well, everything's okay now. 
um, you've done it, you've got a living baby, so it's okay. And it absolutely wasn't okay. It was incredible that we were bringing a baby home for the first time, but I think we spent most of those first few days in tears um, because everything was a constant reminder that we hadn't brought Ruffy home. Um, so it, it was lovely that people came around and said all these wonderful things, but the two of, our, two of us were just sitting there thinking we should have done this with Ruffy. Why did we not do this with Ruffy? Do you think there was some sense in which people's responses were different because it hadn't been a baby that they had been able to meet, it hadn't been a baby at home, it yeah. had that his life had been in a hospital? Yeah, um, I do. My two best friends actually came to see him. The I think that was actually the first time they told us he was going to die and ushered us into this room and they said you can have um, friends and family whoever you want to come in and um, my two friends came in and they met him which was wonderful but the others you know other people have said to me I wish I did get to meet him I wish I would have seen this incredible boy that you're talking about and they couldn't which is hard for them as well because they don't know you know they want to talk about him but they never met him all they have to go on is the stories I've told them So for, I'm aware that there'll be people listening who are maybe um, have been through something similar but not quite as far down the road um, as you are. Is there anything that you can think of that would... I mean, it's mad to say that would help. It's almost <laughs> impossible to imagine anything that would help, but... I think it's just time. Um, everything gets easier with time. Um, I think, obviously, having Ezra and Tilly has helped... Um, but even before that, we just had to find a new normal. Um, we found ways of coping with it. Pete and I, in fact, um, visited Rafi's grave every single Sunday um, for a year from the day that he died, um, which a lot of people thought was quite strange. And we thought, no, we're parents. Other people take their kids riding on a Sunday. We'll go and visit our child's grave. <laughs> and we did it, and that helped. And we sat there and we read Guess How Much I Love You. Um, just little things I think keeping him very much alive um, in our family is important and I think that's that's very helpful it helps other people um, feel that they can talk about him it helps because the children know who he is um, I think just yeah keeping him alive and how is Pete because one of the things that you brought up which I think was really important was um, the lack of support for mm. the fathers going through it's, this yeah, it's it's shocking. They are not treated, um, you know, as a fifty-fifty caregiver. They are. They don't have boobs, so they're considered, um, you know, not that necessary to the to the child, which is shocking. Um, they're, well, just, they're considered necessary for sort of taking care of the yes, lactating partner. Exactly. I think that's it, yeah. yeah it's the non-lactating versus the lactating partners. Yeah, they, they seem to be suitable as far as the nurses and doctors were concerned for... for keeping us fed, keeping us watered, making sure we had everything we needed. Mm. Taking care of mum. Taking care of mum, exactly. Mm. Who's taking care of dad? Um, and that was something um, both of us actually feel quite strongly about, the lack of resources. Um, we tried to get some counselling after Ruffy died and we were just passed from different agency to different agency. It's funny when... Well, it's not funny, it's quite sad... But when a baby um, dies, when they're much younger, um, a mother is given a bereavement midwife. There is no such thing. Your baby dies when he's eight weeks old and you're left to your own devices. Um, the therapist 
on the neonatal unit who was absolutely wonderful saw Pete um, for almost a year after Rafi died that's not her job her job is to support the parents on the unit but there were no other resources out there um, that could help is that because you weren't led to them or is it because they don't exist I think they don't exist. We looked for them. We contacted all of the charities and said, um, you know, can we have some counselling? Is there anything that you can do? We, we were completely lost. We had no idea how to get through it, how to cope. Um, and we just needed some advice, some help, and there just wasn't anything What there. was it you needed? What, what is the fantasy charity that you needed that would fill this gap? I think someone to talk to, possibly um, someone that we could speak to who had been through it that could tell us it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we've done it. We've been through it. And we found, obviously, our own friends and um, people put you in touch with all kinds of people once you know you've had a baby that's died and I've made some wonderful friends um, but at the time when he died it would have been nice um, to be able to speak to someone that could say it's going to be okay this is what you can do to help these are nice things that you can do to remember him um, obviously at the hospital when they said he was going to die they came in they did their handprints and took a lock of his hair which I, I will always cherish um, but there isn't really anyone after um, that baby dies that can support you. So you walk out of the unit, you go home, and that's it? Yeah, and it's horrible. You walk back into the home that obviously you've been going to every night for eight weeks, um, and it's just... It goes back to normal, but you're not normal. Um, everything has changed so fundamentally, um, but you're walking back into a home that still has no baby in, um, and it's, it's horrible. Are you different as a mother, do you think, to Ezra and Tilly? Yes. Um, I think things that previously would have annoyed me, I I just don't care about. Um, little things. Um, and they sound really insignificant, but things that really would have bothered me before, I genuinely couldn't care less. Um, they're alive, they're happy, and that's the only important thing. Mm. How is it, you were talking about friends um, before, um, and I remember thinking even when when I first met you in those first days, what an incredible group of friends and family you must have because you were telling us that there were so many people dropping food around that Jess and Pete needed. I'd never heard anything like it. We were all being supported by friends and family in different ways, and this is in no way, Mum, a criticism. <laughs> um, but um, Jess and Pete needed, like, a lockbox outside their house because so many people were bringing them. Mm, okay. um, that food was, and Ocado shops yeah. and meals. and So I remember thinking, what an incredible group of friends you must have. Incredible. Um, the lockbox was partly so that we didn't have to interact with people after such an exhausting Brilliant. day. Genius. Partly so that people could drop food around um, whenever um, they could. And it was, I think, within days of Rafi being born, my friends had set up this food writer and friends, close friends, people you know I'd met at university that were still in touch with friends of mine that had heard about Rafi were dropping food off and it was amazing because that's the one thing that I think people can do to support you no one because I can obviously help with the baby or even support you emotionally that well but when you've been in the neonatal unit all day you get home all you want is a home-cooked meal Mm -hmm. Um, and it's wonderful to to have that it was really brilliant that seems to be what Jews do when they go and get stuff we Jews cook. are good with food yeah good with food Absolutely. It, <laughs> <laughs> it matters yeah. um and your friends on the unit because I know you've kept in touch um with a really mm-hmm. close group of women from the milking shed yeah. 
how is it for you when everyone's together with those kids? I remember, I think the first time, because you and I stayed in touch and we were always texting, but I hadn't mm -hmm. seen you for a long time. And then we all met up in a play cafe, one of yeah. these sort of ghastly places yes. that's covered <laughs> in like hand, foot and mouth disease and kind of, <laughs> where you just can kind of feel the germs radiating on every surface. And, um, and we were all there um, with our then two and a half year olds mm. and you had little Ezra toddling around. Yeah. How is that for you? That particular day was difficult because that was the first time I'd seen such a large group of mothers and children. Um, before then I'd seen the few friends um, that I'd kept and their children separately. But that particular day, I remember just walking in and thinking, this is not right. Hmm. My child is not here and he should be here. That was difficult. Um, but it's also a brilliant reminder that miracles do happen that all of these children are alive, they are healthy, they are wonderful, um, and it's a miracle that they are. Um, and so it's nice in that sense that I get to see them growing. I get to kind of look at them and think, Rafi would have been doing a similar thing at that time, which, which is nice. How do you remember Rafi now? It's been four and a half years, almost. Wow, it has been four and a half years. It feels like it was yesterday. Um, one of the other mums, um, Kamisha, <laughs> sent me a meme when um, we were in hospital, I remember um, receiving it in the milking shed, and it said, some people never get to meet their hero, I gave birth to mine. And I think that really just sums up um, how I feel about Rafi. He was um, my absolute hero. I am so incredibly proud of him and everything that he achieved in his very short life. I am just so grateful to Jess for her generosity and her bravery and for speaking with such eloquence and insight and heart about Rafi. See you next time on Mothership. Mothership the podcast about stories that start before the beginning, presented by my mummy. I'm Francesca Siegel and my book, Mothership, is in bookshops now. If you want to hear even more of my voice, it's even an audiobook. Mothership the Podcast is a Vintage Books production, presented by me, Francesca Siegel, and produced and edited by Lena Norms. Brainstorming and direction by Vicky Spencer. Music is To Clarity by Airy. Thank you for listening, and do come over and follow me on Instagram at Francesca Siegel and Vintage Books at Vintage Books to continue the conversation. I would really love to hear from you.